Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. We've had several requests to re-speak about 30 seconds of this interview's intro due to some sound problems. My guest on this interview is Nick Pinkston, founder of Plethora.com, a San Francisco-based company that is accelerating the hardware product development lifecycle with its rapid design and prototyping process. Plethora.com's unique and new approach to engineering is shaking up current manufacturing processes that have existed largely unchanged for decades. Last year, Nick Pinkston made it to the Forbes 30 Under 30 list. I would say that making hardware more like software is a very succinct way of describing what you're going to discover in this interview when you listen to it about Plethora.com. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast, almost here around the corner technology. And today I'm talking with Nick Pinkston, uh, the CEO and founder of Plethora.com. And Plethora appears to be um, a machine shop that offers rapid prototyping um, and custom ability to make anything that uh, that your heart desires. Um, but I'll let Nick explain that better. How you doing, Nick? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. So, yeah, can you give listeners um, a better version of what I said on what Plethora does and what its unique abilities are? Totally, yeah. So, um, you know, most of our, our customers are R&D engineers prototypes for new products. And on the other hand, they might be building the production line itself. And so, you know, you might be building like kind of the end effectors on the robot, a test system. There's all these things you might do. So it's either the product prototype or the, or the manufacturing line. And, uh, you know, our kind of shtick is that we can do both the kind of front end, like, Getting you a price on what it's going to be, but also giving you feedback on the components you're ordering, and then also we can produce them in our factory, which is we, we sort of made a new kind of automated factory where the equipment, which is normally programmed by people, we've made a software system that does that automatically. So our customer will come to us with a part, and they'll say, or you know, actually many parts usually, and they'll say, here's the material, the geometry, all the kind of specs. And then our system will say if it's possible, and uh, and if it is, it goes into our factory and it's made. And if there's some issue with it, it actually detects it and tells them, hey, you're going to have to make that hole bigger or deeper or you know any any number of things that are kind of the rules the machines need to do their job. Huh? And how did how did you come up with this idea? Where did this uh, come from? Yeah, I mean, so. You know, I had a business before this called CloudFab, and we did 3D printing and injection molding. So 3D printing, a very modern process, which you kind of press a button and a part comes out. And then injection molding is a sort of traditional process, like what most consumer goods are, are plastic and made out of injection molded parts. And, you know, it took me into a lot of factories. And in those factories, I found that the, uh, the equipment was super cool, but the actual software and methods to use it were uh, very outdated. So... Um, there's all this kind of upfront setup and, you know, an injection mold, it's like making the mold itself and kind of tuning the equipment to shoot the plastic into it. Um, and every process in manufacturing has all the setup costs. So the insight there was the computers could automate that setup cost. And so instead of paying 
tens of thousands of dollars before you make anything. Um, you could just buy one thing and it would be, you know, hundreds. And so it lets people make things in small quantities that before would have been just prohibitively expensive and slow. Yeah, why why haven't computers been used previously to help on the setup uh, to machine something new? Would Sorry? Did people feel like it couldn't be done by computers, or what, what was the holdback? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, traditionally, so in the United States, there are 17,000 uh, job shops for machining. And so all the equipment is, like, pretty much off the shelf of what we buy and everyone else buys. And the real secret sauce is, is that normally there are kind of, um, highly skilled machinists and engineers who would um, program all the equipment and make the production and test plan for any given part. And that's super expensive and slow. And, you know, this industry never really thought that you could take the uh, sort of brain of a machinist and put it into a computer. And that's really what we've done sure. at Plethora is we've made a, uh, a system that can reason about how you would make a part from the design itself and uh, and from then automatically program the equipment. So that that takes away a lot of kind of you know, actually hard thinking that people have to do and turns it into a kind of push-button exercise for this more traditional equipment. How how smart is the system? Like, uh, you know, in your testing, how accurate is it or how knowledgeable is it compared to a skilled machinist? Well, right now, skilled machinists can definitely still beat us on, um, on certain things. So if a component has a lot of, um, you know, what we call tolerances, so kind of how tight the measurements need to be and how close to the drawing, um, you know, if they're really, really tight, then we still have internal master machinists who will do that. But for a lot of parts, they can go into our automated system fully out the other side, pass quality control without any human having to program anything. Wow. How do you do this? By artificial intelligence? Or is it just a knowledge base that the computer draws on? Or you know, what's the architecture look like? Sure. You can use many different ways. I mean, a lot of the upfront sort of system is analyzing the geometry and kind of characterizing what they say is a feature recognition. So you look at, um, you know, figuring out if something is a hole with threads, if it's what we call a pocket, there's all these different kinds of features you could have, and then you categorize them, and then you kind of have to look at the part as an overall um, sort of system of cuts in this case. So we use CNC milling and turning, so machining processes. It figures right. out um, kind of works backwards and figures out how are we going to hold it. So one of the big things, you look at all the features, you look at like how they're accessible by, and then you figure out how you're going to hold it. And then that's the hard part. Once you figure that out, then um, you figure out how to cut it from the sort of, um, they call them operations. So you hold it and then the certain, certain parts of the, um, of the raw material are then open to be cut. And then you have to figure out what sequence you want to cut them in. So all that is done in a, uh, in a system for us. It determines sequence too? It determines everything. So, I mean, our system has to figure wow. out, like, what cutting tools it is, how fast they're going to go. There's all these parameters, hundreds of parameters for um, wow. for any little feature. And so it has to figure out. And then afterwards, when it when it thinks it's got it, it goes into a simulator, and the simulator um, kind of virtually cuts the part, and it says whether you made it correctly or not. And if not, it says, okay, try again. Huh. And it'll keep doing that until it finds a solution or says, I can't find a solution. And then we kick it out to a manual um, kind of traditional process to make sure the customer gets their part. That's amazing. I mean, it sounds like uh, origami, machine shop origami, you know. It's hard. Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, it's been maybe over two years of development of the kind of core technology. And, you know, we're producing customer parts from this all the time now. Um, and, you huh. know, over time, it's like, you know, we start off in CNC machining right now, so computer-controlled machining. 
And really all these different traditional processes are able to be done similarly. And that's kind of a long-term plan for us is just keep getting more and more of these um, sort of manufacturing processes and turning that really kind of long and expensive process of setting them up into a kind of full automated computer system. Can you reach back further um, into design itself? Can you have the machine, can you tell the machine what you want and have it figure out a more optimized way to do it? You know, less screws needed, uh, less parts. That's a or... great question. Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, yeah, there, there are things like what we do right now that's close to this is in our feedback. So there's a, a type of um, kind of methodology called DSM, Design for Manufacturability. And so in that, it tells you what the machines can do, both at all, but also in a cost-effective way. And our geometric analysis um, in real time will give the, the engineer or the designer the ability to see into that so that it'll highlight portions of the part where you could improve it. Now, we're not gonna tell you, um, you know, if you came to us and said, I need to make a better engine, you know, we're not gonna be able to generate the engine, you know, for you. But, um, but I do think in the future, um, you know, people can do that. There's a, a set of design sort of methodologies called generative design. So this is not something we do, but in the industry um, with, uh, you know, 3D printing and other kind of digital processes, you can take, you know, one, one famous um, competition was GE tried to make a better bracket to hold the jet engines on a plane. And, you know, right. the whole optimization there is make it really strong because, you know, it has to last a long time, but make it light as possible so you know, the more weight reduction you get on a plane, the uh, the less fuel you use in the lifetime of the plane. So it's every every pound is like maybe tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars if you shave one pound. So they're really into that. So they made this whole kind of computer system to um, to automate the um, the generation of the design. So they might say like, okay, it has to attach to this place in the wing. Here's the bolt pattern and you know what the shape looks like. And then here's what the jet um, sort of flange looks like, figure out how to do it with these parameters, and then it will generate that. So, yeah, that's that's the future is really reaching into all these different design um, kind of problems. So that one is a uh, sort of statics and dynamics problem from a from an engineering sense. And there's other ones that are like, how do you size the right motors and gear train, or how do you do all these different problems? I do think yeah. in the future that will be possible. We don't do that right now, but, um, but they're fascinating problems that I think will happen, and engineers will have to more – think about what are the kind of problems they need to solve, not so much how to even solve them, you know? Well, it sounds like, though, you're going to be a critical component and that you could easily interact with companies that are at that, you know, previous uh, step in the process and your technology would be very useful to them, you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that, um, you know, most people use us because we're extremely easy to use them or fast. So these are people who um, R&D engineers they are always on a deadline, same for industrial engineers. And, uh, you know, a lot of times their boss's boss promised promise them something that, uh, you know, they wouldn't actually be able to do realistically. And so they're trying to buy their way out of um, that situation. Mm -hmm. So I feel um, yeah, to them to, to and it's okay. all about bringing a better product to market faster, and that's how you win. You know, you, you bring a better product yeah, to market right. faster, people buy it, and then your company wins. So I think Plethora, the ultimate thing we sell is the ability to accelerate innovation and make you win. If I come to you with a design and I want to optimize for different things, can your system do that? Like, for instance, um, I right, have the design with, for this thingamajig, but I want to make it as lightweight as possible or I want to make it as cheap to manufacture as possible, or I want the least number of uh, parts or screws needed, can your system accommodate and go for different goals and optimize towards those? 
So currently, the only thing we let you optimize is price. So you can you can cost it in real time. So as many times as you want to hit analyze, it'll tell you the price. And then um, in the future, we don't do this now, but yeah, we would be able to do those kind of um, like solving things. But you know, when you get into multiple parts in the same what we call an assembly, um, it gets a lot more complicated as far as like what are you trying to achieve? You know, so we need a lot more user information, which a lot of times it's kind of implicit like you know the design has something but um the computer doesn't know why so you know part of the reason that it's harder to do these problems is that the design tools people are used to using are actually just they're literally like the core that most cat is built on is 28 years old um it's crazy huh. um wow. and we really haven't changed the math or the underlying kind of guts of these systems so i'm actually an advocate of really changing how they work but you know let's solve one problem at once <laughs> yeah okay just you know, seeing the future for it. Um, totally. So, what kind of um, what kind of things are you asked to uh, to design? You know, on a, on average or typically. You know, um, it's it's all over the place. I mean, an industry like we have done, like automotive, is probably one of the biggest things we do, and a lot of self driving cars and electric cars. Um, we've had um, a lot of parts for those, um, and it could be everything from you know, components to test the car, to pieces of the car, to pieces of the, like, you know, in the case of self-driving cars, they have, like, LIDARs and stuff. So we've been asked to make parts for those. Um, let me think. And then we've done some aerospace work on, uh, you know, cool things, probably a flying car we've made parts for, um, all sorts of, like, electronics parts. So the actual case for the electronics or, like, the tester for the electronics. Um let me think we've made fancy coffee machines, um, drones, <laughs> all sorts of stuff. It's kind of like, you know, we're in San Francisco. So you can imagine a lot of our business comes locally and it's a lot of tech companies. Yeah. What, um, what materials can you, um, machine just, I mean, a few different metals or what can you make? Metals and plastics. So, um, you okay. know, I would say that, um, in metals, it's, you know, the kind of usual suspects like aluminum or steel or stainless or brass or copper, those kind of metals. Um, for plastic, it goes from stuff that people might have heard of, like nylon or polyethylene, all the way to really exotic stuff like Vespol, um, which is like, I don't know, maybe 2000 a pound or something for this stuff. Very exotic. What is it called? So Vespel. Yeah, V-E-S-P-E-L, I think. And um, huh. I believe it's used in satellite applications because it's very good in vacuum wow. and it's very stable. So also it's a weird you know, all sorts of weird stuff we are asked to make. And, uh, yeah, the plastics actually are way more expensive than the metals, funny enough. Really? Yeah, when, a lot of people when think you, plastic um, is cheap, but <laughs> it's not. Okay. Well, I'm sure a good plastic that, you know, has high strength or a high melting point or the right properties is a lot more expensive than run-of-the-mill plastic. So I'm, I'm, that's probably why. I like that milling pun. Um but, you know, it's funny, even cheap stuff like the um, like at a grocery store, the plastic bags you would get are low density polyethylene. And we would we would use high density polyethylene if we were to machine it. But even that, I think, is maybe call it a dollar or two a pound where I can get aluminum for even less than that. So it's it's kind of funny. Mm. Um, the metals, for whatever reason, I think if we use so much of them, um, if you think about it, like steel is how like highways and bridges and cars are built. So we just make so much of it. It's made in bulk. And um, yeah. and we got good at it, you know. So it's pretty cheap. I think the spot price of steel is like four or three hundred dollars a ton. So it's cheap stuff. How often um, do people ask you to make things that your system says can't be made, or your machinists say, eh, "We really can't do that"? 
at all or cost effectively? Yeah, all the time. I mean, a lot of it is um, is us telling the customer, like, because, you know, not everyone knows everything, and some people are trying to really push the boundaries of the technology. And sometimes, yeah. um, you know, for us, they're, they're sending it to a bunch of different shops hoping someone can do it. And often, like, everyone says, sorry, it's okay. not possible, you know. But um, but almost everything we get, I mean, I probably 90-some percent of it is uh, is possible, and we make it. Well, what, have you thought about coupling with a 3D printing fulfillment aspect? So for the stuff that um, could be made even better with 3D printing or impossible geometries with normal milling um, that have to be 3D printed, have you thought about integrating with a service like that, especially because you used to be in it, so that you don't have to really turn almost anyone away ever? So, you know, it's interesting. Most of the issues that you have are not because um, – you know, like 3D printing would be able to do it. A lot of the times, like nothing could do it. Um, and really? it's sort of because the, um, you know, like if you if you want a part that's both, say, complicated in a certain way that 3D printing could do, but you also want it to have high tolerance that machining can mm. do, but 3D printing can't, you get into this thing where, um, you know, say you wanted to cut something that was as complex as a spider web, you know, and is thin. Well, the mill right. has like 30 horsepower. It's just going to destroy it, you know. So even if you can 3D print the like what they call the net near shape of that kind of lacy part, you couldn't actually get the tolerances on that. So there's really exotic things you could do, like um, like laser ablation technology, but almost no one would do that. You'd have to have a really good reason. I mean, you'd we'd probably spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to that particular part to set up a system uh, okay. to do it if you really wanted it. So we just have to tell people like, hey. You don't want to do that. Unless you really do, it's like some critical component that's key to your design, then sure, like someone could do it, but we're not going to do something that exotic. Um, you know, it's really not worth it for us. I don't think anyone else really would either. You'd probably have to, like, pay someone a lot up front to, to have that kind of thing done. But certainly I think there are ways of doing hybrid 3D printing and machining that make a lot of sense. We've had a lot of industrial customers who want to, you know, print some kind of um, – uh, net near shape component and then post machine it and it is possible to do both but you need both the 3d printing for the crazy geometry and the milling for the drift tolerances yeah it's very interesting it sounds like there still is a gap though a chasm between 3d printings making you know crazy objects but then being able to post process them to the point where they have the necessary strength or tolerances or they're able to be used in the application totally. that you want them for and, you know, another problem is that it's 3D printing specifically because it has such geometric freedom. Um, the tools most people use, like something like SolidWorks or Inventor, um, they don't have the kind of necessary complexity in the interface. So, you know, for instance, if you want to put like a million little holes in something, that's probably going to crash something like SolidWorks. Um, and so what people are doing now is they're making 3D printing specific software. So people can um, can get the kind of performance characteristics they want, but it's really hard to use. And so, you know, my friends at uh, N Topology are making an easier system for this, and it will generate that kind of um, of file. And they've just had to rebuild the um, kind of underlying math um, code to be able to deal with things that are that complex. But um, but yeah, that's actually one of the key problems. People who want this high performance 3D printing. Uh, are, are really having to do a lot of work to even get good part designs, even though the 3D printing itself is pretty easy a lot of the time, though even that isn't fully true. Like if you're doing, say, metal 3D printing, it's very hard to um, to get the sort of dimensions and even just to get the thing to succeed um, in, in the processes we have now. It's a very guess-and-check um, kind of way. So it's not, um, it's not a push-button process as um, 
people wish it was. Huh. Interesting. Okay. Um, so what do you see as the near-term future for what you're doing? Any expansion plans or just the refinements and, you know, what's coming up so in rate, this next year for Plethora? Sure. Yeah, 2017 is really exciting for us. I mean, right now, um, you know, we basically have, through 2016, have been getting the product a lot more um, sort of scaled out and what it can do. And so we have a really big release coming in January um, that will have a lot more complexity and materials and everything that um, we've been offering to our current clients, but it's not publicly exposed yet. Um, and so that will be cool. And then also um, we're going to be adding sort of, you know, in the, in the near future, just sort of more scale, you know. So we've been getting a lot of customers, and a lot of times we're at kind of peak capacity. And so now I've just been like, okay, we just reorganized our factory. You're going to get a lot more machines and people and, you know, actually just turn out a lot more stuff. So I'm, I'm pumped for that. Um, that's the short term. Okay. And what about a, a longer range goal? You know, sure. Fantasy I mean, reality. Me, what do you think? Five years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think a lot about um, how someone takes an idea in their brain and then brings it to scale, you know, so it's, it's kind of, longer than we can really discuss right now what that plan is. But ultimately, you know, when you're inside of a design software, that software should be really easy to use. That's not true right now. That software should bring all the different, you know, kinds of manufacturing and processes and parts together that let you build an entire thing. So ultimately, if you design some machine, I think you should be able to hit buy, and then all of it just gets made, sent to you, or even assembled and sent to you. Um, and I think that's really the ultimate goal for this stuff is, is to make it just like, you know, Vistaprint makes business cards. Well, what if that was a factory, you know? Um, I think of it like cloud manufacturing. So if we could do that, it would make, you know, small teams, it would give them huge leverage. Um, so that, that's what really excites me about why I make Plethora is I have all these ideas that I want to make, and uh, they're too mm. slow and expensive or annoying to make in the traditional way. But Plethora will let you make it really fast and cheap. Well, all right. So does Plethora offer design help? For people that don't know how to use the, the you know CAD software to make what they want, do you help at that stage, or if not, do you have a referral, a recommendation of who? So we currently basically target only professional engineers. So if you have a copy of uh, of a CAD system, you probably paid like five thousand bucks for it. You probably are an engineer, and you're at a company that um, you know already has budget for this and, and hires people with training. Um, that's the now. I think in the future, that's totally on the table, and I'd love to make it more sort of democratized for people. But um, we're very much in a game of our some of our, our most of our revenue really comes from like enterprise clients who um, you know who who can do it, um, who already have the software, already have the training. But agreed, like it's I think CAD is still too hard. You know, it's too expensive, and people like Autodesk yeah. are making Fusion. There's also Unshape, which is like a browser-based CAD. Those are coming, and so. I think we will have to do more content um, and just like, yeah, maybe even refer people to CAD engineers to help them make it. But we don't offer that service yet. And what about working with um, 3D printing companies and taking the stuff that, you know, they're making on their printers and maybe putting it on your system and showing how it can be made so it needs less post-processing or, you know, they could even reduce their material cost and their price to what they're making. I think that a lot of things are on the table like this. I mean, what I want to do is I want to take our engineers who are already buying different things and really make it so it's the easiest way of doing this. So, you know, a lot of our, our customers, they're already buying 3D printing. They're already buying, say, electronics, all these different things. I like to be able to offer the entire thing to them. Um, 
And so, you know, we're not there yet. But, yeah, certainly, I mean, Profit really thinks that anything that we can add value to should be in-house. So a lot of the times if we were going to do a process like 3D printing, we'd probably just buy the printers um, and do it ourselves, you know, and and hire people who just were experts in that to do it for us. Um, Because, you know, operational excellence is a big part of manufacturing. Like anyone can buy the machines. Um, and start making parts, but maybe you wouldn't make them fast or you wouldn't succeed all the time, or maybe the parts you make wouldn't be quality. So we're really into you push a button and it just happens perfectly. You know, it should be like magic for you. And that's not something to outsource right. to people. That That's the magic. <laughs> Amazon, you know, they don't have warehouses that aren't Amazon um, because they think that's a core competence of theirs. And we, we think similarly. Makes sense. Okay. So, um, you know, for people listening, how can they get more information about Plethora and evaluate, you know, whether it can help them or not in their, you know, sure. in their engineering? I mean, right now the easiest way is to just go to Plethora.com. You'll see a kind of download add-in link. And so if you already have CAD, that's really the only people who can use this right now. Um, and so you would download that, put it into uh, SolidWorks or Inventor or NX. Those are the CADs we support. It's free. And then after you install it, you uh, you have a buy button inside of CAD at that point, and then you can analyze all the parts. Okay. Well, very good. Um, anything else that you think we should have uh, talked about that we didn't talk about? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, I think that uh, a big topic for me is what I call the future of tools. And um, Professor actually mm-hmm. just ran a conference called the Future of Tools, like an unconference for uh, kind of just the experts of the field. And we got people from mechanical, electrical, and biotech, and, you know, all the different disciplines. And, uh, you know, we saw a lot of cool themes out of that. Uh, and so, um, you know, that's one thing I'm really excited about, but I think maybe your listeners would be interested too, is like Plethora to me is like one of, you know, many different companies that are in this, what I call Future of Tools space, which are really making tools not only more, you know, sort of cheap and fast or whatever, but also um, making those tools with feedback, like sort of some of your questions are, are definitely on the market what we think of, of like, can it help you make the design itself? Um, and what can the computer do to make you an even better engineer, not just do the current engineering better, you know? So mm. I'm excited to sort of keep track of this future of tools. We had all sorts of cool stuff, like how can the machines be smarter, like, and know what you're trying to do? How can the software be smarter and tell you, um, yeah, how to get out of trouble or the proper motor to use. There's all these different things you could do, you know, and that's just engineering for mechanical. Um, you know, there's so many things that it's like, man, why, why do you have to do all this grunt work to make it work? Like I had a friend yeah. actually who was at, um, you know, I, I guess I can't even say where he's at, but he's at a, a known company. <laughs> and he was saying, yeah. you know, for, for software, give me a couple really good software engineers and that'll do better than, uh, you know, a bunch of mediocre ones. He's like, but for mechanical, for a lot of times, give me like 10 mediocre mechanical people because the tools aren't leveraged enough. And I think that that's a big problem. You know there's something wrong when you need mediocre people just like specking bolts and, and motors and everything. Um, I think that's yeah. a really interesting um, sort of future that's coming is, is removing the need for, um, for that kind of grunt work and then making it so one engineer can have kind of superpowers to create. You know what would be really interesting is um... – you being able to help companies with legacy systems that they don't support anymore. So let's say um, they have a machine and they don't have tools for it. Um, your system probably could, I would guess, is you know take the part that's already existing. Uh, I don't know if your computer system could reverse engineer it and say, hey, this is where 
a hole would need to be, this is where this or that would need to be. Or maybe you can make custom tools for, again, systems that aren't supported, so they could be fixed again, or parts that are legacy, so they could be brought back to life and made on totally. demand. Yeah. yeah, I think spare parts is really interesting. The, the sort of reverse engineering problem is definitely a big one. Um, I, I'm pretty confident that, um, you know, I've talked a lot um, in sort of talks that I've given on what I just call reality ripping, you know, just like ripping CDs. And, you know, in a sense, I think all reality is already open source because you can just touch it, take it apart, measure it. Um, it's already there. And, you know, 3D scanning and kind of even like more advanced systems like CT scanners can do complete kind of x-rays and re-engineer, um, you know, not in a perfect way, but in a way that may be able to infer the design from it that you could take, a, you know, a bolt or anything else and figure out what it is because most likely the pitch on the, um, on the bolt threads and its length are probably relatively standard sizes, you know, like the pitches, there's only so many pitches that have ever been made and it could identify them um, without having to have like perfect accuracy, you know? So I, I am, I am um, sort of confident that in the future we will have this ability to reverse engineer things quickly and then make spare parts without the design files. Um, and in intermediate mode, a lot of people still have, you know, paper or PDFs that are 2D drawings that they need to turn into solid models. And I think that's another big area for someone to, to get into that we don't do now, but you know, it's something that you don't, you know, all these old companies, all it, all it is is just 2D stuff. Um, and then, you know, for us and other people to make them, you want the solid files to be sort of modern in your engineering. And that conversion step is, uh, is not trivial for a computer to do. So a lot of times it's people that do it, but you know, I, a company can make a lot of money just, taking 2D stuff and converting it to 3D for these companies that have lots of legacy components. Makes sense. Okay. Well, before I give you any crazier other ideas that are too <laughs> much to implement, <laughs> I appreciate your time, and it's been, uh, it's been a really good interview. You know, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Pleasure. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. <laughs>